0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Plot. I'm Sean Douglas. I'm an arts writer, podcaster, and teacher. And in this episode of the show, I'm talking to Brian James Polek, a playwright and host of The Subtext, a podcast he produces with American Theatre Magazine. As I think many of you will know, he starts each episode with a long reflection. They're sometimes hopeful or world-weary or a mix of both. As he examines his personal goals, insights, questions, or anxieties... I've long admired his willingness to let his audience in like that, to collapse that boundary between listener and host, as it's something I've generally avoided in my podcasts. While my shows do give you a sense of what I'm interested in or curious about, and you've even met some of my friends, I'm much more comfortable keeping my shows about the experiences and feelings of my guests rather than my own. Even in my regular life, I'm generally more comfortable asking other people questions than I am talking about myself. But in this episode, you will hear me telling Brian, a little facetiously, that maybe I should start this episode with a personal reflection of my own, as a sort of homage to his podcast. And as I gave it more thought, I decided, yeah, this episode really should start that way. We spend a lot of time talking about success in this episode. So here are some thoughts from me about success. It's not something I put a tremendous amount of thought into or anything. It's not some thesis on success or anything you probably haven't heard other theater people articulate in their own ways. But for the first segment of this show, here's a loose overview of what my journey in theater has been like, and what I'm thinking about now when I think about success. I chose theater as a career because I wanted to write plays. I wasn't the kind of person who grew up surrounded by theater and going to tons of plays and theater camps or anything, but I was a creative kid. I enjoyed writing and telling stories putting on skits for things like Cub Scout gatherings or competitive programs like Destination Imagination. In high school, I published a novel, a fantasy story I had started writing in middle school and decided to just keep expanding and make into a full book. It's not something I would recommend as an example of my work now, as my interests and writing and general life perspective are, I like to think, quite a bit different than what they were for me between the ages of 17 and 12. But for a long time, that book was a big project of mine, and it gave me experience producing a long-form work, releasing it, and having something out in the world. During high school, however, I had also started taking acting classes, had started reading more theater and getting cast in school productions, and by the time I entered college, I knew I didn't want to write another novel. I wanted to write plays. Now, UW-Madison, where I was an undergrad, doesn't have a playwriting program, but I sought out the opportunities I could. I double majored in theater and English with an emphasis on creative writing. I took playwriting classes when they were offered, attended a writer's retreat one summer, and wrote short work for the Undergraduate Theater Association. I also wrote a long, meandering farce that was very much a training play, very much the typical first play that you write before you really know what you're doing. It was overstuffed and essentially unproducible, but it gave me the experience of writing in a new form back when I was still just a teenager. I knew playwriting wasn't really a job, so I figured I would go into dramaturgy or literary management, something that would have me employed in the literary side of theater, while I could work on my own plays on the side. Following college, I moved to Chicago and spent more than a year in theater internships. This was a hugely developmental, but not very happy time in my life. I really liked Chicago, but I was very lonely there, and it was hard to feel established in a new city or career when I was spending so much time doing unpaid work and not usually around people my own age. I have a lot of thoughts about how problematic the whole unpaid internship thing is, but I did learn a lot from them, and I appreciate the organizations and people that gave me these opportunities. Then, through some auspicious Twitter conversations, I found myself trying journalism, covering Chicago theater for a small media company in New York, and I also joined the staff of a storefront company I admired as their company dramaturg and I liked both of these places enough that they were basically the backbone of my theater career for the rest of my 20s. I enjoyed this work, and I'm proud of a lot of what I created or the plays I helped others develop. By working remotely for a publication in New York, I had access to connections and opportunities I never would have had in Milwaukee, my hometown that I had moved back to. It was validating to have my pieces cited or shared by major theater outlets and press channels, and Even if my general readership was never huge or anything, I felt like I was at least in the game, that I was part of a national conversation instead of just a local one. I also discovered I liked podcasting. My first show, The Scene, was never like a big hit show or anything, but I was really pleased with the guests we were able to feature and a considerable industry audience that listened to each episode. But did or do I feel successful? I think there are definitely individual shows, articles, or plays that I feel that way about. I'm happy with a lot of what I've done, but do I feel successful overall? As we think about success in this episode, and I reflect on that question for myself, the answer is no. Not really. I still feel like someone who spent more time commenting on the theater world than really being in it and even as a journalist, I never felt like I had really arrived. I was always working in fairly startup-y contexts, and while I appreciated the flexibility that came with them, and I did enjoy where I worked, I still wonder what it would be like to write for a larger or better-known publication. While I was glad to be able to make money writing about theater and dramaturging plays, these weren't full-time jobs, and like many artists, I found myself constantly hustling across other side gigs like editing, web design, or working in my father's office. In retrospect, I know I lived with a mild, high-functioning depression from about 2013 to 2016, until it dawned on me just how much anxiety and uncertainty I'd been living with, and how that wasn't actually normal. I am much better now, but as much as I was grateful to have opportunities that weren't at all available where I lived, that constant hustling throughout my 20s, combined with the thousands of miles I commuted back and forth from Chicago and other sacrifices had me constantly wondering where is this going? Am I sure that I'm really getting something out of this? Will this lead to opportunities and real progress, or will I look back and think, man, I made so many sacrifices and never really got that much out of them? As I look back, I'm good with the decisions I made. Some things worked out, and some things didn't, but I have few regrets. But if there is anything I do wish I had done differently, it's that I wish I had prioritized my own work and my own happiness more. I've spent so much time editing others' articles, writing script critiques or workshop notes for other playwrights, and in my own writing, I've spent so much time promoting other people's work. If it's sometimes hard for me to fully see myself reflected in what I've done, it's because so much of it is just publicity for other people. And don't get me wrong, I love promoting other artists there's a reason I spent so much time doing that. I love having conversations with them and advocating for their work, but I got into this industry and have made so many of the decisions and sacrifices I have because I wanted to write plays. And since leaving college more than eight years ago, I've still only had a few small productions. So when I turned 30 about two years ago, I decided it was time to move on from being a managing editor or a dramaturg or whatever other theater gigs I was combining that with and spend more time on what I wanted to make. I still podcast, I still have conversations with other artists, I'm working on a new play, and then for my day job, I teach and design online escape rooms, which is not something I ever saw myself doing, but is actually pretty fun. I think in the theater industry, we normalize a lot of really unhealthy behavior. We assume people have to hustle, and we assume people have to sacrifice time, energy, money, and security as just a regular part of the job, but instead of saying that out loud, we couch it in misleading euphemisms, saying things like, well, you know, theater really competitive, or you won't get rich doing this, so you gotta really love it. Maybe we should just be more honest with each other about how hard things are, about how we're feeling, and about our successes and our failures, without worrying that we're going to delegitimize ourselves. I'm not producing as much content as I used to, and I've noticed some interest in my work and career waning, declining social media followers, fewer publicists or fellow artists reaching out with different opportunities. I worry sometimes by stepping away for a bit from the journalism side of my career that I could be losing my place in industry I've worked so hard to carve a niche out for myself in. I have some ideas for new projects next year that I hope will help keep me in the mix while still being fun rather than obligations. I may not feel successful, but for the first time in a long time, however, I'm actually feeling pretty happy with how things are, and I think that is the more valuable of the two of those. Although, if any more established publications or organizations out there are looking for a writer or content creator in the theater or new play development niche, I am available. And with that, um, those are just some thoughts for me about success, about my journey, about the things I wish were different about the theater world, but also some of the things that have gone well and how I'm still I'm still basically wrestling with that question myself. What, what would success look like for me? Um, where do I go from here? And I'm not sure what that is, but it's a question I'm looking forward to figuring out. So with that said, uh, that's enough for me. Let's get to the interview with Brian James Pollack. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hey, Chuck. Good. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Now, um, Brian and I had already been talking a little bit, and I thought this would be a good point to turn the mic on and actually start the interview, because we had been talking about how he starts every episode of the subtext with his own monologue during the cold open about what's been going on with him or some kind of personal reflection. And I was saying that I should start this episode of the plot with, with some kind of homage to the subtext, um and then you were you were telling me that that came from somewhere.
1: Yeah, so The Subtext actually started in 2015 as a a program of LA Stage Alliance in Los Angeles. And uh Danny Oliver, I can't remember what her uh title was at the time, but Danny Oliver was uh, an employee of LA Stage Alliance and they were launching a new online magazine called At the Stage. And I was living in L.A. and I was working at a theater in L.A. Um, for many years. And so, I, you know, Danny and I knew each other. I knew L.A. Stage Alliance very well. And when she was launching this magazine, she thought of uh, me as somebody who could be a contributor. And so we decided to to make a podcast, which isn't something I ever did before. Like, I don't actually I didn't come into this with any kind of podcasting skill set. But we thought it would be a good idea to start a podcast where I, as a playwright, would interview other playwrights. And as we were sort of, Danny and I were sort of figuring out the structure of of the podcast and, and sort of like how long should episodes be, how, how they should be structured, etc. I was listening to Mark Maron's podcast called WTF, and Marin starts every episode of his podcast with him sort of talking extemporaneously for 10 to 15 minutes about what's going on in his life and i really started to appreciate that because you develop a relationship with him and and a sort of an emotional connection to his podcast through that relationship um by hearing you know the stories he's he's constantly telling and uh and I thought that was a great way to to structure a podcast. I am not a very good extemporaneous speaker, I'm not funny and I'm not as charming as he is. Uh what I am is a as a playwright, so I figured I can't do exactly what he does, but I can I can sit down and I can kind of craft a short narrative or monologue or something. Um so these things that I do at the beginning of each episode uh are they're written down and sometimes they're written in a sort of like really fast way like and sometimes that's because i'm on deadline and i haven't thought of anything yet and i don't know what to say um and sometimes because i feel like the more authentic thing i have to say will um it'll sound more authentic if i just if i write it really quickly and i don't spend too much time crafting um but anyway, that's that's how it started, and and these monologues are sometimes they're just stories of things I'm observing, uh, and sometimes they are, you know, very um, self-reflective. The first one I ever did back in the very first episode for the the LA version of the subjects before it moved to American Theater Magazine, it was a story about a man uh, I encountered at a coffee shop in Los Angeles. He had just been released from. Um, a sort of halfway house, and he, he was at the very beginning of his first day of freedom in, in, I don't know, it was like 60 or 90 days, and he was on his way to the beach, but he was getting a cup of coffee first, and, and, uh, and we struck up a conversation and spoke for a bit. And I, and I, and that moment just really stuck with me. So when I was, when we're launching the first episode, I was like, what do I want to say in this space? I just wrote this, uh, this reflection about this, this man I encountered and thinking about what the rest of his life might look like from the point
0: after we said goodbye. Yeah, so that's that's it. That's the story. Hmm. I, I would say that I I was not totally sure if they were pre-written or not. I think you have a really natural delivery that sounds like it could just be you talking off the cuff.
1: Yeah, I think I think that has been uh, a product of me doing this for so long now. So I, you know, the, 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 I did it for about two years in Los Angeles and then, uh, I moved to Chicago in 2017 and, and the podcast picked up again in January of 2018 when I, um, connected with American theater magazine and they started to produce and distribute it. Uh, and so what happens is, you know, uh, over time, the skill set that I didn't feel like I really had, I started to develop. And there is a kind of um, I think when I'm rec- when I'm writing and recording these, I am you know I'm writing for myself, so I'm kind of writing to my own voice, and I know the way that uh, uh, I can talk and sound. Um, I don't know clear and articulate and uh, i guess be effective in in what i'm trying to communicate so i just know how to craft that for myself um and then when i record it i try to not be i don't know like a perfectionist i try to still be natural about it like i'll leave little mistakes and i'll do that on purpose because i for two reasons one i just want to be like my authentic self but also i don't want to fall into some kind of like ocd hole where i need to perfect every single syllable uh and sometimes i have bad grammar and uh and i'll realize it as i'm reading it that oh that's that verb tense is wrong or something like that and and i'm like oh i don't care i'll just keep it in there um so you know i've just i've just developed a sort of like ability to be able to read my stuff and and kind of do it in a in a natural way. But yeah, I don't want it I don't want to give the impression that any of this is, is coming off the top of my head. I recorded all of one episode in in all of the years of doing this where nothing was written down and I just sat down and talked into the microphone for like forty five minutes.
0: Yeah, I think I could tell that there was like structure to it, but it did sound very natural. And I think that's one of the things that I like so much about the subtext is how authentic it feels. And Thank you. Um, you're you're very willing to go into certain things you're concerned about or certain things that other people might feel make them too vulnerable. And I feel like you're very willing to explore those things. And I think that is also reflected in your interview style. I think you have a very conversational way of relating to your guests. Whereas I've always looked at my shows as being more like, I'm not making the Sean Douglas show. It's going to be all about the guest, and I'm just going to sort of remove myself from it which i guess works for for what i'm trying to do but i really admire people who are re- really willing to like put so much of themselves out there and make that a big part of what they're doing yeah that for me comes out of a lack of training in 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 journalism really you know i i came into doing
1: the podcast without any any interview skills like i didn't know how to conduct an interview um and so I just went into it following my own sort of instincts, and and I think over time uh, I've started to edit myself out of the conversations a little bit. Like there, sometimes I'll do a conversation, I'll record a conversation with somebody that will go in, you know, an hour and twenty minutes, and as I'm going through it, I start to hear myself a little bit too much, or I start to hear myself repeating anecdotes or stories that I've told previous episodes and I kind of had this recognition that people aren't really tuning in for me and I am occupying the first few minutes of every episode already with my own voice my own narrative so slowly over time I've kind of started to edit myself out of the the, the conversations with playwrights um, more and more but still trying to maintain the the you know, the conversational quality
0: of the, of the talks. Yeah. I think there are a lot of shows out there and a lot of interviewers who say like this show is about having a conversation when it's really more about questions or something like I've always looked at there being as kind of like such a difference between an interview and a conversation. Um, Yeah. But I think yours really feel like conversations in a way that I think is really cool.
1: Yeah. I look at them as like I'm having coffee with the person and I'm talking to somebody who uh, I'm just genuinely interested in as a human being. And so I don't do much research. Uh, Most of the time I already have some kind of understanding of who the person is and a little bit of the work that they've done. Uh, And every once in a while I'll talk to somebody and I'm going into it and I don't really know much about them at all. So I'll do uh, like the day before um, I'll read something they've, they've written or I'll read about them or I'll watch an interview that they've that they've done if there is such a thing out there uh, and I'll get a kind of general sense about them and maybe come up with one or two sort of touchstones from their life that um, specifically interests me uh, but I don't write anything down like it's sort of whatever I take in and sticks with me is what I'm bringing with me into the conversation because I really want it to be like we're two friends who were just introduced, and we're sitting down having coffee, and this is the conversation
0: that results from it. That's sort mm-hmm. of how I frame it in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely comes across that way. And do you have favorite interview questions? Like ones you know will always get you an interesting response, or something you're just always curious to learn about someone?
1: I, I, I They're not necessarily favorites, but it's sometimes, sometimes I just have go-to's because uh, they they help me frame the conversation um, but a couple questions that I asked I asked a lot about success and how people see success or define it for themselves or if they if they see themselves as a as a success uh, I'm obsessed with that so that is if you listen to a lot of these episodes you hear me coming back to um, the concept of success over and over and over again. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, I am always finding, trying to find the moment with, of their life where, where writing became a thing, where playwriting became a thing. Uh, how were they introduced to it? Um, when did they consider themselves uh, a playwright? Um Yeah, those are, so those are the kind of questions that I I will come back to for pretty much everybody.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I don't mean this to be too much of a bait and switch, but I was going to ask you that question and then ask you back whatever you said was your favorite interview question. So, (laughs) so what, what is your definition of success? And do you feel like you've found that? Assuming success doesn't have to be like a terminal point. Right. right. Like it can be right. a sort of state of of being. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I definitely don't feel like I've achieved anything, to be honest. <laughs> uh,
1: I so I would not I would not frame myself as a, as a success at all. Um, I see success as this as a sort of unachievable state and it's a it's a it's a journey and the journey never ends and you keep trying to to get there and that's sort of where how i see myself it's sort of like the way i think of it is like um you can't nobody can be perfect i'm not a perfect human being uh but i want to be so i keep trying to Identify things I could be doing better as a, as a, you know, as a member of society, or as a person in a, in a relationship, or as a person in a family. Um, I'm constantly evaluating myself and trying to get better. And I will never achieve perfection, um, but I'm constantly trying to just be better. And I look at my playwriting career. The same way. Like, I may never achieve success, but I can constantly try to do better, to write better plays, um to be a better collaborator, um,
0: so on. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite thing that you've created? Or the, um, a thing you're maybe like the most proud of where it's like, that really came out the way I wanted it to?
1: Yeah, I have. You know, I've probably written somewhere between like 15 and 20 full length plays. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, you know, they're like my children and I love them all equally. I definitely do not love them all equally. Uh, But I have I have like deep affection for many of them for very different reasons. Like uh, this this play I wrote for my thesis when I was in grad school uh, is called it used to be called Henry and the hippocampus and it's now called the patient. And it's about a man who suffers a head trauma and he loses the ability to create new memories. So he can't, he has no short term memory. He can only remember things from before the head injury. So everybody he knew before that, he still knows and remembers, Um, but he can't learn new information and develop new relationships. And, I I just love I just love this play. Like it like it was the first time I felt like I was writing something that was emotionally honest. And I think that's what I my journey was up to that point as a writer. Uh I think by the time I got out of grad school I had been writing plays for maybe like six year five or six years and uh I was always sort of like hung up on writing some big clever idea. And then my journey up to this point was really finding who I was, but the, the authentic me um, from an emotional point of view. And with this play, I, I, I felt like I, I tapped into it. And I hit it for the first time and it felt really good. Um, and I was really, really, I think it was the first time I was really proud of, of a play. Um, so I've been like, that, that is, I think that's, sort of like the play i am most hopeful to see produced one day out of out of all of them i think that might be the one because i think there's something i found sort of like visually like i just feel like it has all kinds of like really theatrical wonderful visual components to it uh potentially depending on how a design team would would approach it um and it has music and i write music in my plays a lot despite not really understanding music at all uh but this the music is at the center of this play and yeah so that i think the, the so the play that i's currently titled the patient is probably the one however the play that started to become um the one that that was going to sort of like be my first for real production, particularly here in Chicago, is a play called Welcome to Keene, New Hampshire, which is a is is simultaneously uh, an homage to my hometown of Keene, New Hampshire, and also an homage in response to Thornton Wilder's Our Town, mm-hmm. which uh which is um you know set in Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, which is a fictional town, but it's set in a real area of New Hampshire which is pretty much adjacent to my hometown of Keene. And uh, I wrote that play a couple of years ago and it got, you know, it started to connect with some people and I, it got, you know, quote unquote signed to two productions. It was going to be a shared world premiere situation uh, with a theater in, in, in South Carolina and a theater here in Chicago. And, And it was like, so 2020 was going to be my big, my big year where I was like, you know, people kind of know me as a, as a podcast maker and, uh, and now they're going to know me as a podcast maker and as a playwright with this, with this play, it's going to be like my, you know, my flag in in the ground. And then the South Carolina production fell through and I was like, oh man, that sucks. And then I was like, okay, well, I still have this, this Chicago production. And we started rehearsals in, uh, on March 16th via Zoom because March 13th or 14th was like the first day we were all kind of really on lockdown here in Chicago. And then, uh, we did rehearsals for a couple weeks and, and then kept kicking the can down the road because we all, we, we on, on that team kind of thought COVID might be, a temporary thing uh, hmm. and then we got to you know later in the spring and realized oh yeah theater d- isn't gonna exist for a long time so uh so this play that i thought was gonna be like this big thing for me um with these two productions ended up being zero productions and uh it's you know indefinitely postponed and, and theoretically going to still be done in chicago um but Nothing's promised, you know, nothing in the future is promised, so I don't I don't know if it'll if it'll actually happen. Mm-hmm.
0: At least you up. had exactly the same number of plays produced as everyone else.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, I was gonna ask you how Welcome to Keen New Hampshire is doing. That's like one of my most anticipated, like new plays after coronavirus lifts and theater's back.
1: Oh. I'm looking <laughs> forward
0: to that one, hopefully getting done back in Straw Dog again.
1: Oh, me too, me too. It's really funny. I, I, I wrote the play in, um, in 2016 before the 2016 election, but very much with the sort of like culture, how our culture was really shifting because of, um, Trump. And that's a sort of like the, the sort of alt right MAGA kind of like point of view is a, is a part of the play. And, the play for me very much wants to be produced between 2016 and 2020. And so it was about to be produced exactly when it needed to be. And, uh, and so depending on, you know, we have an election coming up. I'm not sure when this episode is going to air. It might be after the election. Um, but we just don't know. So
0: yeah, right this now, one will we'll air after. The election. Mm -hmm.
1: So as you and I talk right now, we are five days prior to this election, Mm -hmm. and we don't know what the world's gonna feel like or our country's gonna feel like in five days. And I think a lot about how this play will feel, um, you know, in a, in a, in a potentially, you know, post MAGA world, although, now that I say those words out loud, I don't even, I think it might be wishful thinking to say that we will be in such a world, even dependent, regardless of what direction the election goes. Mm-hmm.
0: Now is waiting a big theme in this play? I know there's a, that song about waiting that I've seen in some of like the publicity materials.
1: Yeah. There's a, there, it's, I would say that there's a sense of yearning to be somewhere else. Um, that is a big part of it. And it was, the idea of waiting is really about like, it is more of like an ironic observation that uh, if you just wait, things will get better, which is not necessarily true. Like, mm-hmm. like I, I kind of think uh, if things aren't going great, maybe you need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you wait, like the, the the song in the in the play, the, the the character who says it is is kind of ironically saying, you wait, "You wait and you 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 wait, and nothing
0: changes." Yeah. So what what have you been up to while you're waiting? Do you have other projects going on? Yeah. I
1: it's I I've really I've been thinking a lot about this recently. Because for I had a I had a really good string of of several years where I was so diligent with my writing I had I had this schedule that I was really comfortable with and I was writing a lot and I was and I was feeling really good about what I was writing and I felt like each each subsequent play that I was finishing was really sort of like building on the previous one um, and. When twenty twenty hit and my production my first production got got cancelled, that was just such like a punch in the gut and it kinda killed my mojo a little bit but I still had the straw dog production to look forward to and uh when that went away, um and we're you know, we're on lockdown and we're at home all the time and my my routines were broken, I really struggled to to continue the sort of same kind of writing schedule that I was so used to. So, uh, what I've done, but but I still have this sort of like, I don't know, need to be creative. Like in, and some of it is because I feel like if I'm not creating something that I'm, I have zero value, which isn't true, but it's how I feel. So I started to make up little projects for myself to, to be creative. Um, so I, I recorded, um, these little mini monologue monologues that i've that i've written that one of them was in a play that got cut so it's a monologue that doesn't have a home and then another one was just a short solo play that i wrote that was like the character was kind of in my voice roughly so i recorded these and then produced quote-unquote produced little sort of like audio dramas with them um which is something i would never done before so it was like i gave myself projects and i learned some new skill set along the way uh, and that kind of kept me occupied. And then I, and then there's this bit from Welcome to Keene, New Hampshire that, uh, I, I just was so excited to see performed. Like it was the, it's the one moment from the play that I am absolutely most excited about watching, uh, an actor do. And, uh, it's so much is a response to, um, Make America Great Again. Uh, and I, I was just, I was saddened by the fact that we weren't going to be sort of like putting this idea from my play into the world before the election. Uh, so I decided to, to essentially film this monologue, and make it kind of like a short film to give myself another project, but to also satisfy this desire to see this piece have a little bit of life before the election. So I took the monologue out of the play and I, I worked with, um, the casting director from Straw Dog and, and she helped me cast 17 actors from around Chicago, um, who I connected with one at a time over the course of a couple of weeks in September. And each one of them filmed the monologue for me. And then I took this footage and I edited it all down. So it was a shared, it's a shared, in the end, it's a shared monologue, uh, delivered by 17 different people. And that was a project that I gave myself and, and that was a great one because it occupied about a month of my time because I'm not a, I, I don't know how to film. I don't know how to edit. So I had to learn all of these skills. Uh, and it was, it was really fun and it felt like the expression I needed to put out into the world at the time because it's sort of like this confrontation with, with MAGA culture. So when I finally finished that and I put it out on social media, uh, I was like, you know what? I'm happy now. So I was happy for a moment, which is, which is uh, not always the easiest thing for me to achieve, but I
0: achieved it for a day. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes that's how it works, right? You you have a moment of something, and and it it was worth the effort that went into it.
1: Yeah, I guess it was, you know the best we can hope for, right? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I did watch the video. I thought it was very good. I think it, I think that was a great sort of teaser um, for yeah. for a play that is that is yet to be, but is to come. And you're teaching as well, right? Yeah, I teach for
1: Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, I've been teaching for them for uh, I guess at the end of this year will have been four years. I teach I teach playwriting and I teach like an intro to Shakespeare class. And I teach a, a screenwriting class as well.
0: The next generation of New Hampshire playwrights?
1: Right. Well, they, it's all online. So mm-hmm. they're
0: online universities. So the, the students are actually all over the country. Oh, interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, mean, I think I've had a couple students who were living in Europe, too. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how mine works. I I teach online and I get just like random kids from, and I don't even necessarily know where they are, but it's like. Oh, they're speaking in another language to someone else. I guess they're not in the United States. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Sometimes you just never know. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and another thing I wanted to talk to you about um, before we go is, I know you studied philosophy in college, and I was wondering if you had any favorite philosophers or a favorite maybe even just like general you know, philosophical idea that has stuck with you out of that.
1: I love this question because my my majoring in philosophy and getting a degree in philosophy was such a horrible mistake that it contributed it partially contributed to my going to grad school to study playwriting. when when i when I went to uh, undergrad, uh, right out of high school, I was so ill-equipped to be in college. But that's what everybody was doing. Like, that's what my older sister went on to college. My mother's like, okay, time for college. So Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to college too. And I went with uh, zero kind of like focus. I had no interest. I had no specific interests. I had no specific skills. Uh, I didn't, there was nothing I wanted to be necessarily. And I literally chose philosophy because I thought it made me sound interesting. And I I struggled through my philosophy classes and I learned very little. I was a really I was a terrible student. It was embarrassing. And the, what what became embarrassing was questions like like this, where I would meet people who knew philosophy, who would find out I was a philosophy major and get really excited and want to talk about Kierkegaard. Or Kant, and I can't. It was terrible. Uh, I I can't. I, like I just can't engage uh, on on philosophy, and it was it was kind of like this embarrassment for me. Like I got, I got out of undergrad, you know, I got the degree, so I have this piece of paper that says I have a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy that I can't I can't stand behind uh, be, just because I I'm such a horrible student. Um, so. It really propelled me to later in life uh, to want to study something and take it and be serious about it and really learn. So I didn't go to grad school until I was 37 years old. So I, I was 15 years out of undergrad. And finally, like, I'm going to learn something and I'm going to be a serious student. So when I when I went to USC, I took it so serious. I went to every class I read every play we were assigned. I was engaging in every conversation because I just kept thinking about, oh, I was such a horrible student when I was a philosophy major. I don't want to come out of grad school. I don't want to sail through grad school, have
0: an MFA, and then not be able to stand behind it. Like, I feel like I can't stand behind my my philosophy degree. Well, I guess in defense of the strategy to study it, because it it makes you sound interesting, when I learned that about you, I did think it sounded interesting. So that part of the strategy works. Yeah,
1: it's such a hollow interest. Like I'm 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 interesting if you learn about it and see me from across a room, but you you engage me in conversation. I and this has happened so many times in my twenties. I remember people uh you know, you'd meet people at parties or whatever and they're like, Oh, what did you study at school? And I'd be like, Oh no, Oh, no, I'm going to have to admit that I studied philosophy. And so I would I would say I studied philosophy, and I would just wait for them to sort of, like, register it and see if they knew anything about it. And if they knew nothing about philosophy, it's the greatest thing in the world because I don't have to say anything, and I seem smart and interesting. But the moment I run into somebody who who can start to, you know – talk about Aristotle or whatever. I'm like,
0: oh no, I'm in trouble. (laughs) So if you had a philosophy, if there was a Brian James Pollackism, what do you think that would be?
1: Yeah, my my philosophy has... I have several philosophies, but one of them (laughs) that uh, I think about a lot is every day I'm confronted with... And I think we all as human beings we're confronted with choices and uh sometimes they happen so quickly we don't even consciously think about them but it's like uh like right now we walk we're walking down the sidewalk in this era of social distance and covid and we're trying to keep our distance from people so we're confronted with the with the choice Do I step out of the way for this person? Do I wait for them to step out of my way? Or do we both throw caution to the wind and walk right past each other? So every day we're confronted with like little sort of like little questions like this. And my philosophy around this is to err on the side of goodness. So the way I think about all of these things that I'm confronted with every day, I call them kind of opportunities. And if I if I can do something good in a moment, then I will err on the side of doing something good. And the way I apply that to my everyday life is, you know, I'm a, I'm a playwright and I'm a person engaged in the world of theater and that's the thing I'm mainly focused on every single day. So I am confronted with a lot of Opportunities for myself to maybe promote myself or submit a play I've written for something. But I'm also confronted with the choice of, um, can I do this for somebody else? Can I promote somebody else or promote somebody else's play? Can I help somebody else, um, in this moment? And, and I just, I, if I can do something good, then I will do something good. And I guess that's
0: how I'll, how I can phrase the philosophy. Mm, that's really interesting. I feel like that's something I think about a lot. Like that interplay between doing things for yourself and doing things for other people. And like I think all morality is rooted in some kind of self-denial on some level, but it's like at what point is it too much and at what point is it too little?
1: Yeah, and that's actually been um the the journey I've been on is in finding and striking that balance for myself because I think when I started to sort of think this way about um, engaging with the world and as a sort of like quiet helper, uh, I would put myself second and I would do it a lot and it would, it would become painful. So like I might send a, so it, it might manifest in a way where I'll like submit a play of that somebody else wrote to a theater because I feel like it's a good match. And then I'll see that, relationship bloom between that playwright and that theater and uh and that'll be wonderful but then over time when you do that a few times it starts to become painful when you are not getting the things that you are giving to other people uh so it's been a journey to find the the proper balance because I didn't want to stop being um that kind of like do gooder in our in our industry I still want to be that person but I also don't want to become um, just this this old, embittered uh, uh, playwright who just snarls at everybody else's success.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think what this means is that after you've done so much for everyone else, everyone needs to go on the New Play Exchange right now and read your <laughs> plays and pick three theaters to send them to.
1: Oh, that embarrasses me.
0: Um, uh, that makes me. Feel and bad. I say that now facetiously, like but maybe like... maybe our listeners will do that. Maybe they'll hear that and go, "I need to read those." Oh, well,
1: Maybe, but the, that, this is where I get caught in like <laughs> a in a tailspin. Like now, I feel like uh, I I only did good to get good, and that makes me feel really guilty because that's not why I do try to do good things. You know, mm-hmm. you just sort of hope that. <laughs> Because things don't, I don't believe things happen in that kind of, like, balance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just hope that other people will also do good. It might not come back to me necessarily, mm-hmm. but I just hope it, goodness
0: happens for people in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll qualify it by saying that this isn't anything that you asked for. This is just <laughs> the host of this show saying that people could do that if they feel so disposed. <laughs> Now, I know I told you we'd have a a half an hour interview and it's already into 40 minutes, so I don't want to keep too much of your time. Can you take one more question? Sure, yeah, yeah. Because I always like to end mine um, by asking people, what is an interesting or memorable conversation you've had recently? Because I think that sometimes takes people out of whatever sort of, I don't know, larger themes they might have been thinking about, and it brings people back into the kind of mundane of just their everyday life. Um but have have you had any interesting or memorable just conversations in your life recently that might have to do with what we talked about today or might have nothing to do with any of that well i i mean i have I have very interesting and very
1: memorable conversations with regularity because that's part of what I do for the subtext is mm-hmm. engage with really interesting and fascinating playwrights and talk to them mm-hmm. and so recently, I talked to David Hajmey. Mm-hmm. for for the october episode of the of the subtext and and david is a fascinating and wonderful uh playwright and that was that was an amazing conversation uh, and i encourage people to to seek that out uh because he's he's really excellent um and that but but actually recently before that uh there was a there's a playwright director uh, you know, acquaintance that uh, I've encountered recently in Chicago. And I don't want to say their name because I don't want to speak out of turn or anything, but I never got to um, sit down and and really talk as much with them as I'd want to. And because of COVID, we aren't really doing that so much. And they reached out to me and and said, uh, let's have a phone chat. And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, I used to talk on the phone a lot you know years and years ago and so um i you know i got on the phone and we talked for like two and a half hours uh about you know our lives and about theater and and plays and and stuff like that and it was just like it was it was it was wonderful experience just getting to know this person but also just sort of remembering what it's like to connect with a stranger and it wasn't being recorded for. Uh, a podcast or a project like i was it was just two humans connecting and uh and it was over the phone it wasn't zoom and it reminded me of being um you know in in high school again when I didn't have a cell phone and I talked on the phone with people that's how that's how de- relationships kind of developed and uh yeah, so that's my that's my i have one specific answer and one vague answer uh,
0: no I like those yeah, I had a phone conversation with a friend recently, and it was like afterwards, like, I never talk on the phone with my friends. Like, I'll video chat with them, or I guess I'll, like, I guess I call, like, people in my family, but for some reason, like, my friends, it's like, well, maybe they're, you know, on Discord or something, and I'm playing a video game with them, or they're, you know, they're I'm talking to them while doing something else with them, but it's just, like, just to sit and have a phone conversation with someone, um, and that's nice. It, sort it of a is, lost art.
1: <laughs> it is, and I feel like I should do it more. Like I feel like if, like I think about my friends and I think about um, talking to people a, a lot more than I actually do it, and I and I just feel like I should I should do it more because I uh, I do enjoy it. I just feel I that's um, like part of what moves me. It's part of why I do theater. Is the is the human connection that we get out of it. And I and I
0: miss that. Well, it's been really good to make this human connection with you, Brian. As, yeah. as I said to him while we were talking before this started recording, um, I feel like you're someone that I sort of felt like I knew just from listening to so many of your podcasts and talking with you online and over email and stuff. But it's yeah. nice to finally talk to you in person. Yeah,
1: and hopefully <laughs> we will do this face to face one day.
0: That was Brian James Pollack on his podcast, his plays, and the meaning of success. You can listen to his show The Subtext from American Theatre Magazine on all the usual podcast platforms or at AmericanTheater.org. That's theatre with an R-E. Links to his plays and social media are included in the episode description. The plot is a production from me, Sean Douglas, and the credits theme music is by Tan Chong Yu. If you liked this show, please subscribe. On iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you know anyone else you think might like this show, please also consider recommending it or sharing it online where more people can discover it. You can follow me on Twitter at underscore Sean Douglas underscore and this show at The Plot Podcast. That's all for today. Thanks for listening.